how do I limit my time online when so much of my identity and so much of my life is online, right? Like if Mm. I shut off, if I shut off the internet, does that make me disappear? Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and explore how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. This week, I have Gabby Goldberg on the show. We talk about the evolution of Web 1 and Web 2 into Web 3, what it was like growing up in the internet, because we're both digital natives. And we talk about what it might look like to build an internet that's a little bit less lonely. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. All right, let's hop into the show. I am here with Gabby Goldberg, who is an investor at TCG and also a prolific thinker and writer on, I would say, like consumer tech. Do you feel like that's a fair way to characterize the things that you write and think about? I like that. Yeah. Well, I am so excited to dive into all of the things today. Um, Before we do that, do you want to give a little bit of background on you and how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole? I would love to. And also just to preface, seriously, so excited to have this conversation. And I really mean it when I say I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. So (laughs) I'm very excited. Um, So high level, my background on how I got into crypto. I mean, I'll say up front, I'm a lot newer to the space than I think many people assume. And I'm just learning so much every day by being in the space. And it's why I appreciate having these conversations and then getting to meet new people by way of you know, putting out my thoughts online through a podcast or a piece I write or something like that. Um, But I got into the space officially probably about two years ago. But the story of having it be really meaningful for me really starts from a long time ago. And the story is really like I grew up online. So, you know, we're similar in age. We both really grew up with the internet. And I played a bunch of Minecraft and RuneScape and just spent a ton of time in digital spaces. Like I literally learned how to code trying to design my own Tumblr blog and things like that. Um, And I also grew up selectively mute, which I think is something that I didn't realize would become relevant in my life later on, but has hugely impacted the way I view technology because I was kind of digital first. You know, I didn't necessarily have a big network in real life, but instead I was finding friends online, like spending so much time, like I said, on Minecraft and RuneScape and being really comfortable in these digital spaces. And so then kind of as I got older, when I got to school, I studied a mix of computer science and philosophy. And a lot of my classes centered around ethics of technology and social computing, like how do you scale and moderate social computing systems from something like Wikipedia all the way to Facebook. I worked in the virtual reality lab for a couple of years. And then I fell into venture capital after school, investing in early stage consumer technology. And I feel like the story for a lot of folks with getting into crypto is kind of slowly and then all at once. So, you know, here and there, I was meeting folks who were building consumer crypto products, and they often were the most interesting founders I would speak to that week. And so just started spending more and more time talking to more folks building in the space, like some notable ones who I really appreciate and kind of ushered me into the space were Brian Flynn of Rabbit Hole, Nier of Yup.io, Brenner Spear, who's working on the metagame, all of these individuals were really, really formative in my experience getting into crypto. And then the other big community that really ushered me into the space was the Bright Moments NFT community. And Bright Moments is and was fully centered around this IRL community. And so I was living in LA. I, I still live in LA. And 
I went to their gallery in Venice and you could mint this crypto Venetian for free and they would cover the gas and everything like that. But you had to do it in person. So you had to meet the team. You had to meet the other folks who were there. You had to learn about the project and why they were doing it. And then the NFT kind of acted as like your ticket into all of the things that the community would do. So, you know, gallery events, uh, talks that the community would put on, you know, like happy hours at the gallery. And it gave me a ticket to go do the same thing in New York and get to know the community there. And just through that experience, I met so many people who were coming into the space for the first time. And I saw how important it was to have that real focused community and having that in-person element as well, I think made the community so special. And it's where I met a lot of my friends who are in the space. And so moved about a year and a half ago to invest in early stage consumer crypto projects and protocols full time at TCG Crypto. And I've been doing that since then. I love that. And I also am very excited to dive into this idea of being comfortable online and in digital spaces. You kind of mentioned that. I guess before we do that, I think one of the things that I find most fascinating about the way that you approach consumer technology in Web3 is you have this very like specific thesis around how Web1 and Web2 evolved and sort of how that gets us into Web3. Um, that does feel like it touches on some of these pieces that you're talking about around IRL and online communities, relationships, like all of these pieces. Can you sort of walk us through that thesis and how you came to develop it? Yes, definitely. And, and I feel like the way that I learn is really through reading. Like if anything, I feel like I'm a historian and I am just piecing together all of these things I learn of you know, what things went right or what things went wrong in the past. And so I'll give kind of a history to start of Web 1 and Web 2 and where I think it brings us now. And then I'll talk a little bit about my thesis around digital experiences like you were touching on. So at a very high level, the web was created in 1989 with this vision of a decentralized and open network of information where users were in control and not centralized platforms. So that's kind of the big thing I want to hit home. In this first iteration of the web, it was users in control of their own information, of their own data. So you can think of companies like AOL and Netscape and this first wave of companies and products that were bringing consumers online for the first time. So during this time, the consumer experience was pretty poor because it was still highly technical. And so to get involved in the space, you had to understand how to actually interact with that technology. It wasn't really built for scale. And I think even at that time, it would have been difficult to understand what the future use cases of the internet could be. But over the next couple of decades, as those platforms reached scale, consumers migrated from open services to more sophisticated and centralized ones. So you can think companies like Facebook, WhatsApp, Uber, things like that. And you kind of have to think about it on both sides, where on, on the one hand, that was a good thing because it gave billions of people across the world access to the internet and its various technologies. But on the other hand, it also made the internet less innovative and less dynamic because it became a lot harder for individuals and groups and businesses to create things online with, without concern of these centralized platforms taking control. And it's definitely still a problem we see today. So one example is Apple taking a 30% cut of all revenues from apps on the App Store. Another example is, I think it was late 2021, 
there was a day for about eight hours when all of the Facebook apps shut down. So Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, they all just kind of like went dark for a day. And I think that was a day that a lot of individuals realized, wow, without these centralized platforms, I have nothing. I have no ownership of my data. I have no ownership of my audience, right? If you are a creator on Instagram and that goes away, what do you have? Or if you run a community on Facebook or all of the businesses that literally run on WhatsApp, it becomes scary to think about what might happen if you don't have ownership of your data, if your audience and those platforms go down. So I guess generally over the last decade, we've all really seen how the role of the individual in value creation has become more and more important, right? You see marketplaces like Kickstarter, Patreon, Substack, Cameo. They all emerge to allow us to directly fund the products and the information we consume. And so today, when we think about it, we as individuals, we already build, operate, and fund the networks that we use every day. We should be able to collectively own them too. So this is kind of the inflection point that brings us to Web3, this third era of the internet, and what I believe is the future of how we'll interact and transact and engage online. It's really going to combine the decentralization of Web 1 with the really powerful consumer experience of Web 2. And I think most of all, it'll take us back to the original values of what the internet should be, which is decentralized and community governed, innovative, and really, really efficient. And so then to your point of how this all fits into this thesis around kind of being comfortable in digital spaces and this idea of digital identity, I've had a thesis around this that. I was thinking about even before directly applying it to Web3, I think it applies to Web2 and Web3 consumer companies. But essentially, the thesis is the first wave of social apps, so think MySpace, Facebook, even Instagram, were created to allow us to share our real-life experiences online. So Facebook was created to connect with your college friends. On Instagram, you were taking photos of the things you were doing and you were sharing them online. And obviously, for those use cases, the platforms worked really well, so well, in fact, that they reached mass scale and we started to spend a ton of time online in these digital spaces. And so now, because of the amount of time we spend online, we don't just have these real life experiences, but we have digital experiences. And this is something that is changing more and more every day and I think is just fascinating. So, you know, we don't just bring friends online, but we make friends online, this concept of a modern friend. We don't just take photos of things we're doing in our lives, but we take screenshots of the things we're doing in our digital life. We don't just follow celebrities, but we follow digital native influencers, which are oftentimes as big or bigger than celebrities prior to this new paradigm. We don't just buy art, we buy digital art, NFTs, and the list could really go on. But kind of the thesis I've had is, you know, at least in my experience growing up on the internet, it oftentimes feels really lonely, feels really empty unless you're coming to the internet with your real life friends, right? Like you're like logging in with people you already know. And I feel like the internet feels so lonely in that way because we haven't really found a way to meaningfully share our digital experiences. And so this is sort of the thesis that has governed how I invest in consumer companies across Web 2 and Web 3. But, you know, what are the companies that are trying to make the internet less lonely? And so, for example, we're investors in Cyber, which lets you showcase digital collections of all of your NFTs to your friends in a really immersive gallery. Um, I'm an angel investor in a company called Pager, which is essentially uh, a platform that, like almost like a LinkedIn bio platform that treats screenshots as the photos of your digital lives. 
Um, we're really lucky to be involved with Flamingo Dow and Archive, which are kind of community curated museums. Um, and we're investors in Guild, which gives the building blocks to power internet communities through membership management tooling. And there are so many more that we're not investors in. And just generally this idea of building tooling to make the internet less lonely, I think is a really, really interesting space just because our digital identity is evolving so much. Totally. And as someone who grew up online and acknowledges that the internet's becoming an increasingly important part of our lives, this idea around like the internet still being a really lonely place and being able to share digital experiences as something that potentially helps mitigate that feels really powerful and resonates a lot with me. I'm excited to explore where that intersects with Web3 and how you think about that. But before we even get into that, maybe it's worth just diving into what you mean when you talk about digital experiences. I'm curious what that's looked like for you and how you see that just to like lay the groundwork. Yeah, I'll give like a personal example and then I'll give two more high level ones that are maybe more like generally applicable, but I think are really interesting. So the personal one that I think I always have as a core memory of like, wow, the internet is crazy is I was deeply involved in this Minecraft server and I would go on all the time after school. And I remember logging on the day after my AP history test, which I think was probably my sophomore year of high school. And I'm seeing in the chat that someone is like not directly talking about the test, but it just sounds really familiar. Like some of the questions I had gotten and they're, you know, it just sounds really familiar. And so I have no idea who this person is or what their name is or how old they are. But I'm, I go, oh, did you also take that AP test today? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> and, we've, and we find out we're, from, we're the same age. We're both from California. We ended up going both to college in the Bay Area. Mm. And we ended up meeting in person like years later at a football game. And it was the craziest experience of having such a close bond with someone, spending so much time with them and yet barely knowing them at all. Um, that I just thought was so interesting. The two other examples that I always think of are more generalizable, but the first one is TikTok. And I think TikTok has this very interesting phenomenon where you may never post a video on the app, right? Like you may be a lurker with just, you know, no profile picture and an automated name with a bunch of numbers. And yet you can feel such a sense of community on TikTok based on mm -hmm. what you find in the comment section. So like, let's say you see a video and then a couple of days later, you see a derivative of that video, like someone, you know, playing off on it or using the same sound or making a joke of it. And you go to the comments and everyone says, oh, wow, did we all see the original? Or they'll say, you know, commenting to stay on this side of TikTok or, <laughs> you know, oh, are we all here too? Um, and it's so interesting because it makes you feel so connected to the other people who are in that same corner of the internet. And yet your sense of physical identity or the, the stuff that you're putting out, like you almost feel just as much of a creator just by being a mm. consumer of the platform. And then the last one, and I'm curious if you have any others like this or experiences that you've had online. The last one I just think is interesting where in some cases it's very taboo and in other cases it's not, which is meeting people in real life through the internet. And so I think actually the main place where that's not taboo anymore is online dating. I have so many people close to me in my life who have met their significant others or even gotten married to someone they met on Tinder, on Hinge, on Bumble, and any of these online dating sites. 
But in a similar way, Bumble BFF and these online friend-making platforms are still largely pretty taboo. And I think that's another interesting shift that I expect to see over the next couple of years of this concept of modern friends becoming more normalized. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think so many of my really great friends that I have today, particularly when it comes to crypto, are people who I met online and then was able to like bridge that gap into real life. And I even dated someone who I met on crypto Twitter. But I think one of the things that stands out to me about those relationships is not fully the case, but like generally speaking, I would consider myself chronically online. Uh, And I also think that a lot of the people who I've been able to like bridge that gap with would probably consider themselves like borderline chronically online. And so I think to me that brings up this question around like, yes, being able to like meet people online and bridge that gap is amazing. You can find people who you're potentially like much more values aligned with and and all that stuff. Um, But also, or at least people who you would never have met otherwise. But also, it does make me wonder, do you basically need to be chronically online in order to make these kind of friends? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you said that because if it makes you feel better, I also consider myself chronically online. Like I literally, (laughs) I just wrote a piece that I haven't put out yet. But the first sentence is like as a self-proclaimed chronically online person. But I guess maybe the thought there is like that percentage has probably grown over time, right? Mm. I don't feel like a couple of years ago I was chronically online. And I think the pandemic probably changed that for a lot of people of where they find community. And now it's more and more in digital spaces. I even saw a report recently that said, I can't remember the exact number, but it was more than 50% of Gen Z believe that their identity online is more important than their identity in real life. So through mm. Instagram and LinkedIn and whatever. And you first read that and you're like, that's crazy. But then you think about it more and it's like, how many friends have I met through online circles? How much of my taste, like the music I like to listen to or the places I like to go out to eat or the clothes that I like to wear have been defined by the algorithms that I see online? And then even for me, like I got my job through the Internet. Mm. And so it actually kind of makes a lot of sense that my identity online is really important. And I think that's only going to continue. Yeah, I think that totally makes sense. And where my brain goes when I hear you talk about how we see ourselves online and how important digital spaces have become in our lives, I think it circles back to this thing that we were kind of hinting at earlier around users owning the value that they create on the platforms that they exist on. And I think one of the things that I've always like struggled with here is in theory, I'm like, yes, 100% users should own the value that they create. In practice, I do wonder if that's actually something that people want to do. Like, do people actually want to govern and own TikTok? You know, that's something that I think I'm constantly battling with when I think about what user ownership really looks like in the space. Yeah, I think the concept of ownership and a lot of these buzzwords that we hear a lot in crypto, sometimes we get a little bit too close to it and then we are unable to see the forest for the trees. And so, you know, I think the concept of ownership in Web3 is like actually owning something and having financial upside. In a lot of ways, I think it makes a lot of sense, but in other ways, I think it's a little bit missing the point. So I'll use music as an example. 
we've personally spent a bunch of time in Web3 Music, investing in companies in that space. But I mean, we personally don't believe and haven't invested in companies that are building in and around music royalties because, you know, as individuals that are super fans of certain artists, for example, my partner Jared is like a fish super fan. I'm right now in this phase of being absolutely obsessed with Harry Styles <laughs> and his like rocket ship growth. We've never wanted to make $10, $20 for going to a concert or being early, but it's more about this connection between the artist and the fan and that sense of ownership, having ownership mm. of that relationship is actually really, really important. And so like kind of history of the music industry, the pre-internet days, power was very largely centralized to the music labels and these labels controlled which artists were signed and when they got distribution on the radio or at live shows. And then obviously as the internet came around with streaming services like SoundCloud and Spotify and social media platforms like TikTok, a lot of that power has largely been redistributed and it's easier now than ever before for an artist to find community and build distribution with, without the help of a label. And so even in a sense, like that feels like ownership. They have more ownership of the audience they want to create and how they want to put out content and things like that. But, but obviously it still falls short in a lot of ways. So for example, today, most artists have direct relationships with a very, very small fraction of their fan base. And most of those interactions between artists and fans are mediated by third-party platforms like Spotify or Ticketmaster. So like, let's say I bought five tickets to a Harry Styles concert for me and four of my friends. Ticketmaster might know my name and they definitely won't know anyone else's name. And then it's anybody's guess of if Harry Styles actually gets to see that information and how many shows I've been to, and if I also stream his songs on Spotify and what platforms I follow him on and how much merch I've bought and things like that. And so Web3 becomes relevant because digital assets can be used not even necessarily as a means of generating more revenue, but more as a mode for building a tighter connection between an artist and a fan. And so now through digital assets, Harry Styles or whoever the artist is can gain better insights on fan identities and their needs, and it allows artists and fans to collaborate and share interests across multiple communities. And so obviously that's like a specific example for music, but I think it's really true for so many different industries of this idea of ownership is oftentimes not necessarily the end goal, but it's more of the means. Like how do mm. you give ownership to foster tighter relationships or more interesting content creation and things like that? Um, and so when you think about it that way, I think ownership is a really important concept for people who may not even know that they're touching crypto. Mm. I'm curious if you think something like that is going to require like a mindset shift among consumers. Yeah, it's a really good question. In some ways, I feel like ownership is important. So for example, like I was talking about this with a friend earlier today, again, on the Harry Styles example, <laughs> but like now with Harry Styles winning album of the year, the people who own a One Direction t-shirt or have like an original One Direction poster, that ownership is actually really, really cool and exciting within that community. Or mm. if you think about like baseball stadiums and the authentic merch, like the game signed baseball bats or the game signed jerseys, those are massive businesses. And people love owning that moment, like that piece of history saying I was there at that time. Obviously, it's just limited of like, how can you share that? How can you track the provenance? How can you track the 
uh, authenticity of all of those items. And that's how that's why digital assets become interesting. So in that sense, I do think ownership is valuable. And then I guess on the other side, and, and you spend so much more time in this area than I do. So I'm curious your thoughts. But I try to think about governance minimization. And so, you know, when we think about governance in a crypto native concept, it's often very tactile, like you're voting on Snapchat or something like that. Um, and the governance is really clear cut. But in a lot of ways, governance already exists on these platforms. So, for example, um, individuals who are putting out like really great quality content and folks are engaging with it by liking and commenting, oh, I'm commenting to stay on the algorithm. That's almost a form of governance of how they want to engage with the algorithm. Mm -hmm. um, last year, probably a year and a half ago, I worked with my friend Kieran on this project called DAM or a decentralized autonomous media network. We were thinking, you know, how could you build a media network that was hyper niche, but kind of owned and operated by its users, you know, on Instagram, where there's no collective owners of the platform, people are really only incentivized to benefit themselves. And the way you see that play out is really interesting of like, you see people using a bunch of hashtags, you see them spamming the feed, trying to game the algorithm, you see them doing like for like or follow for follow, and it results in a worse consumer experience. Like crypto aside, the consumer experience is just more poor because people aren't incentivized to make the network better. And if you had a network that was governed by the community, you're now incentivized not just to benefit yourself, but to benefit the broader network and make it better, um, make it more valuable. And so, you know, you're incentivized to not be spamming the feed, not be posting hate speech, but instead like pushing towards better and more high quality content. And obviously, it's just kind of more of an experiment and a proof of concept. So I don't know if this would work at scale. And I'm curious if you've thought about it. But um, I think this idea of ownership is just when you think about it in these less tactile ways, it does make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I think governance minimization is a really important part of how we make some of these things scale. And I also love what you're mentioning around this idea that like a TikTok like or a comment is actually kind of a version of governance. I think longer term, we'll probably see a lot more of that where you actually have governance mechanisms that are native to the platforms that these things are happening on. So I think that's really interesting. And where my brain starts to go on that is like, you still want hyper-local communities. Like you don't want all of TikTok being able to vote on something by liking your video. And so I think where my brain starts to go when I think about what does it look like for governance to be minimized and native to these platforms is this question that I've actually been thinking about a lot, which is like a little bit of a tangent to this, but I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Basically, I think like democracy doesn't scale super well. I had John Hillis on my podcast last week. Like it's kind of becoming clear that in order for democracies to work really well, you want hyper local communities. But there's this weird tension between that being true and also the network effects of these platforms and the nature of distribution skewing towards scale. And so when I think about, you know, our current platforms today and like how we move forward towards a more hyperlocal internet where people can govern the spaces that they actually care about, um, I kind of run into this wall of like, do platforms need to be huge for distribution? So I'm curious how you think about that. 
Yeah, I have really the same struggles as you. Um, of it's like something that I want to see in the world, but it's just tough when you don't have that liquidity in the network being hyper local. I mm. guess again, going back to dating apps, it does work, and it's hyper local because there's a clear need mm. that it's solving. But yeah, it's tough. I mean, in crypto, like super local is really interesting, which is sort of like a hyper local, almost like a Web three Foursquare, and it incentivizes you to kind of like go out and visit places in your hometown. Um, and then I think also all of the different AR apps and games that are coming out are interesting in that sense of like incentivizing you to go out to where you are and inevitably you kind of like run into either on the digital map or in real life other folks who are playing that game if it reaches scale. So there's things like Jadu and Mirage um, that are that are pretty interesting there. But yeah, your thing about distribution, when I think about consumer, distribution is king. Like I'll I'll use music again as an example because it's just been top of mind recently. But my thesis on Web3 music, and it's largely a little bit fuzzy, so just bear with me. But um, <laughs> And I, I could also totally be wrong. So if people are listening and, dis- and disagree, please let me know. <laughs> but generally, I feel like in each kind of wave of technology, the person who won in music was the person who could help you get distribution. So like I was saying earlier, like, with this first wave, like with the radio, it was labels because labels could get you distribution on the radio and to play at live shows and things like that. Then the internet comes around and streaming comes around. And actually a lot of these labels were like anti Spotify or anti these streaming services and they were pushing against the technology. But it was the folks who leaned into online distribution through streaming, like Venice Records, for example, that actually won kind of that iteration of technology because they were able to give artists distribution in a new way. And so Mm -hmm. now when we think about Web3, like I don't even know what the answer is, but it's more of the question, like what is the platform or what is going to be the step change innovation that is going to give people distribution in a new way by way of NFTs? And it may just be the individuals themselves, like individuals Mm -hmm. act as a mode of distribution because you can see what's in someone's wallet. And that almost acts as a form of curation. Like actually, if I ever go on to a Web3 music platform, I'll go search for curators that I really like. Like I'll go look for Cooper, other individuals who are closer to the space than I am and listening to more Web3 native artists than I am. And then I'll listen to the music based on what they've bought. And so that distribution is actually really interesting. Mm -mm. Maybe, maybe you don't know the answer to this, but I'm curious. In your research on Web1, was this a common phenomenon where like a lack of centralized platforms created a need for more curators? Oh, very interesting. Of like, it was just more difficult to see what other content was out there. Mm-hmm. I don't have an answer. That is really <laughs> interesting. Um, I mean, I feel like this push towards curation was just a product of there being a ton of information on the internet. And so if I'm trying to like back myself into this, it was the products in Web2 that enabled people to create online that much more easily. And so it didn't become a problem and didn't offer room for the solution until Web2 because there was so much content out in the world. Like if you think about the first iteration of the web and the folks who were building websites just directly on HTTP, that that's like a small number. And I don't know if the 
I, and I just wasn't around for it. So I'm not sure. Um, but my gut is that it was this push of so many people coming online, you know, I guess initially with Usenet, but then later on with being able to have your own blogs and being on Facebook and all this stuff that now curation becomes important. But honestly, I don't know. And it's a really good question. Interesting. Because that's often what I think about, too, in the context of mainstream adoption. And and of course, there's debate around what that means. But like, it it feels like when crypto culture becomes, quote unquote, mainstream, like I would say board apes didn't become mainstream, but they had exposure. And I would say that they were picked up by a lot of like mainstream media outlets for coverage. Um, but it feels like it becomes so dilutive by the time it gets there and often like isn't really well curated. And part of me wonders when we think about some of these networks that enable discoverability, you know, like to your point, maybe we won't ever have that. I don't know. Um, but I, I don't think we have a great way of bringing people in and and helping people understand what's going on in the space, partially because we don't have these like centralized platforms. Even OpenSea, despite aggregating a bunch of different um, things that you can do around NFTs, obviously mostly selling and buying, um, they still are not really a discovery platform, I would say, not an effective one anyway. And so yeah. um, it's, it's always interesting to me to think about Okay, so if we don't have a good platform for or or means of helping people understand what's going on in the space, then like how do we get people into the space? Um, and so I'm curious how you think about like mainstream adoption more broadly and what that really looks like, but then also some of the blockers to that. Yeah, let's talk about mainstream adoption in a sec. I want to touch on kind of that last part that you were talking about of OpenSea mostly being used for search. And this is a very interesting shift and actually it's a little bit of a shameless plug but tcg crypto <laughs> we wrote we wrote about this in our end of year review kind of thinking about how our own perspectives have changed over the last you know year and a half of running the fund um but it starts with an analogy that actually peter chernin of tcg gave on his podcast with patrick o'shaughnessy on invest like the best and it's a really interesting analogy he doesn't talk about open in this example but i think it really connects so he says when the shopping mall first kind of came about in the 50s, it was the best of everything. It was the best clothing. It was the best jewelry. It was the best food in the food court. And businesses were actually really happy to pay rent, literally, to the shopping mall to be able to be a part of this because the curation of it was incredible and people would come for this aspect of discovery. Hmm. Then the internet comes around and brands and businesses realize that they can go direct to consumer. And now, honestly, like the shopping mall is not a bad place to go, but it certainly doesn't have the best of everything. Right. Unless you're going to like a like a luxury shopping mall or going on Rodeo Drive or something like that. But now it's like everything has been pushed online and everything has been pushed direct to consumer. Brands and companies and businesses want to own the vertical business. Right. Like they want to have the community. They want to have the e-commerce. They want to have everything. And they don't really need to pay rent to the shopping mall as much as they used to in the past. And you are kind of seeing a similar thing develop in crypto where kind of in the in the advent of NFTs when they first became very popular, OpenSea was search, but it also was discovery. Like hmm. 18 to 24 months ago, it actually was a really cool experience to go onto OpenSea and see what was on the front page. 
And it's much less of a common behavior now because, you know, if you want to call NFT projects brands, like brands are going direct to consumer the same way. And they're mm. leveraging NFT liquidity aggregators like Reservoir, FirstMate, and, you know, all of these different products to be able to spin up their own secondary marketplaces on their own site. And so now you see like Board Ape has their own secondary marketplace. Goblin Town has their own. There are a bunch that I'm forgetting now, but you see this similar push to wanting to own the vertical business. Like they want to have the community, they want to have the mint site, but they also want to have the secondary marketplace. I think another innovation that will be really interesting is a stronger Web3 communication layer through mm. maybe something like XMTP or Dispatched or, or Lines or something like that. And now you not only own all the things I just said, but you also get to own the chat and the direct reach between the brand and the audience or the users and each other. Um, and so now I'm definitely rambling, but <laughs> I think like this aspect of curation or even just discovery, it's being centralized in this very vertical specific way. Hmm. Yeah. And that becomes very interesting because I guess what what ultimately this ends up doing is it kind of reminds me of nouns in some ways where it's like proliferating your meme then is is one of the most important things that you can do, which I feel like is kind of just a like annoyingly intellectualized way of saying building your brand. Um, but it's interesting that we love to use terminology like proliferate your meme. But like that ultimately feels like that's what that becomes because that is your top of funnel, right? Is like totally. people knowing your brand. Absolutely. And you also see brands begin to like self-actualize by nature of the things that they acquire or they curate. So I'll give like some Web2 examples, but many of my favorite accounts to follow on Instagram are these curated accounts like Hidden New York, Furniture Archive, New Bottega, things like that. And they're obviously run by an individual, but I don't know who that person is. I don't know how many of them there are. The brand and the identity of the, the account is a product of the things that they've curated on the page. There's even kind of like a slightly Web3 version of this on Twitter called Entropy. It has like mm. three or four ends or something if you are trying to search it up. And they, I've watched them on the account slowly start to decentralize the curation, which is really, really cool. Where at first they were just posting really cool photos and like I could find the links on Tumblr and like they were just curating the internet in a cool way and I liked their taste. So I would follow them and I would have post notifications on. And then all of a sudden I started to see that people were tagged in the posts of the photos that they were curating. And I think it's because they were they're testing out this like decentralized way of like proposing things to put on the account. And then voting mm. on if it gets posted or not. And th this is me speculating. I, I've just kind of like seen the page change over time. But it's been really interesting. And it almost made me think of like, you know, like I said, we have a seat in Flamingo and we're investors in Archive. And they build a brand by continuing to curate things. And the analogy I use there is like you go to the Louvre to see the Mona Lisa, but you also go to see the Mona Lisa because it's in the Louvre. And like mm. as the Louvre continues to acquire and showcase different artworks, those artworks accrue value by nature of being underneath that brand. And so now it's like if you decentralize that ability to curate and you have that collective taste making, I just think it becomes super, super interesting. Hmm. This kind of reminds me going back to this idea of sharing digital experiences, like to some degree, curators are 
kind of curating these digital experiences, right? Like, Mm -hmm. particularly for things that are digitally native. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's an image depicting something that's outside of the internet. And even when I think of something like Pleaser collecting NFTs, like obviously that's very digitally native. Um, But even the Doge NFT is a kind of digital experience, which kind of makes me wonder if that's what's going on. I think so. I think that's a really good example. And I guess when I think about it, we're actually seeing this quite a bit throughout the space, whether it's like DAOs that are collecting NFTs or even like MetaLabel um, put out this tool. I think it's called Chorus. That might be wrong. Um, But basically, it allows you to crowdsource tweets for like a, you know, brand Twitter account. So um, I believe the way it works is like you basically send a message through this Discord bot. And if it gets enough upvotes, then it gets tweeted from the MetaLabel Twitter account. And so I think we're definitely seeing a lot of experiments with decentralized curation. Obviously, it's still very early. Um, But I'm curious more broadly, you know, like we're in a very tight knit space right now. When we open this stuff up, I don't know how effectively it's actually going to work. And so I'm curious, like, do you think decentralized curation can be effective? And what do you imagine that looking like? I do think so. And it's definitely shown through our investments in these kind of curatorial groups and also just like following the entropy account and things like that. Um, There is the potential to run into the Bodie McBoatface scenario. And I'm going to (laughs) butcher it. I'm going to butcher the exact story of what happened. I'm literally going to look it up right now just to make sure I don't butcher the story. But essentially, I believe it was um, it was like somewhere in the UK. They basically gave the community the ability to name this boat, this like scientific research ship. And the most popular suggestion from the community to name this boat was Boating with Boatface, which is like (laughs) such a joke. And I guess there's a world where that could happen. But like generally, I'm bullish on like wisdom of the crowd and having this collective taste making. So it's definitely still early, but I've been encouraged by kind of like the early signs from the archives and the flamingos and entropy and all of them obviously are very slow to decentralize, right? Like flamingo isn't fully permissionless and even archive, there's a membership application to join the curatorial DAO and entropy. I have no idea how they're deciding who gets to vote, but um, it has to be kind of top down at the beginning to, to kind of protect the brand from itself. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you one last thing on this and then sort of get your broader thoughts on um, how Web3 impacts the Internet in general and and all of that before we wrap up. But one thing that does come to mind when it comes to curation and even the idea of like having a seat in Flamingo and stuff like that or like Pleaser being able to collect the Wu-Tang album, like a lot of the um, through line there is access mostly by way of like financialized assets. And so I'm curious how you think about the financialization of a lot of this stuff and how that impacts the way that that these things are adopted and also like maybe seen more broadly. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this and it kind of plays into some more general thoughts on what we need to do to actually have crypto reach mass scale. But a huge aspect, I don't want to say problem because we've we've come so far, but a huge aspect of the last cycle is that crypto was really largely pay to play. 
um, and the folks who had insider knowledge or even just like a strong ability to analyze what was happening on chain had a huge advantage in figuring out what was going to become a big narrative or what was going to accrue value. And it was a little bit of like the rich get richer scenario. I even wrote a piece earlier this week called Towards Crypto Literacy. And I was talking about how a lot of the products and companies that unfortunately like really washed retail investors out over this last cycle, first of all, shouldn't have even been considered crypto at all. They weren't decentralized. They weren't transparent. But it was the folks who, in many cases, didn't know better and didn't have the financial literacy to understand what was happening in crypto and how to best protect themselves as consumers. That's a whole other rabbit hole of like, should consumers have to or how do we implement consumer protection from the get go? But I listed all of these tools that I think are really helping to push the space forward in that regard of like, how do we make consumers feel more technical? How do we make them feel more financially literate to give them kind of, you know, empower them to engage in crypto? And so many of them are things like human readable block explorers, they're transaction simulators, so you can see what you're signing before you actually do it. Um, There's even an on-chain firewall that's leveraging MEV to basically look for fraudulent transactions in the mempool and block them before they come through to your browser. And I think all of these things are really, really important tools if we want to actually reach scale in the next cycle. Mm, Yeah. And and I really loved that piece, I think, partially because we often forget that like people are not going to go to Etherscan to check whether or not a transaction was submitted. Like these things are just we need better tools to make these things more understandable and more accessible. And I think, I guess, even if you take out uh, the financialization piece and, and assume that, you know, open editions that are free and other things are, are going to do well. um, The ability to actually understand what the fuck is going on on chain feels like a very important part of actually seeing um, this, this technology get adopted and used. Absolutely. And then, you know, even more thinking about what we're going to need to do to reach consumer scale in crypto. This idea of like every man for himself, basically like being responsible for your own actions and making sure you don't sign something that's wrong. And like all of these things, I don't think is going to work at scale. Even like from a baseline, the idea of having to manage your own private keys is so difficult to imagine working at scale, right? Like it's already hard enough for people like us. Um, And so it's why I'm excited about a lot of the infrastructure being built right now, like multi-party computation and social recovery to kind of help self-custody feel more realistic at mass scale and ideally actually feel more convenient than giving custody of your assets to some other counterparty. And then I think the other aspect of it, too, that is a whole other rabbit hole, um, at least for consumers in the U.S., has to do with regulation, which is figuring out how regulatory bodies can work with crypto companies and not against them. So consumers aren't pushed offshore where the opportunities are oftentimes a lot less transparent and more risky for everyday retail investors. And obviously that was, you know, such a big part of things that have happened over the last year and really top of mind with the recent Kraken settlement. But I mean, I digress. We have we have a long way to go <laughs> to reach scale. Yes. I know it, you're not in the business of giving predictions. But if you like had to make a guess, how long do you think it will be until Web3 hits like significant enough mainstream adoption where we're at like the MySpace era? Oh my gosh. Well, I want to say more than five years. I hate that I'm saying this because I'm going to end up being so wrong. (laughs) 
I'm, cur- I'm curious your thoughts. I would say probably like, I think it's probably going to be a five to 10 year time horizon. I mean, yeah. I think we're going to see probably the early adoption of something in the way that we saw NFTs and PFPs bring a lot of people in. Um, I I am like very bullish on a lot of the zero knowledge stuff that's happening. I feel like that has real applications because it's innovative beyond like a values alignment perspective. Like I think crypto is fundamentally still a cultural shift at its core and that's hard. But like zero knowledge proofs are very much like a technological shift. And so I'm kind of I currently have all my hopeful eggs in the zero knowledge proof basket yeah um but i don't know i mean i'm 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 not sure exactly what our time horizon is going to be i feel like of course that's hard to to guess and obviously like the macro environment is also weird um definitely there's a piece that i'm trying to find the name i think it's called something like why i'm less than infinitely hostile to cryptocurrency which is mm. like (laughs) funny but true (laughs) by um astral codex 10 And a big part of like the gist of the article is it's kind of like if you don't get it or if you don't need it, it's because you don't need to get it or you don't need Mm. to need it. And for example, um, there's a company, Skiff, that is almost like Google Drive or Google Docs, but it's end-to-end encrypted, privacy first. You can sign in with a wallet. Um, And for someone like me, it's like, it's going to have to be a better product and more convenient to use than something like Google, because for most consumers, privacy isn't so much of an issue. But actually, I think it was last week or two weeks ago that Russia actually banned Skiff from Mm. being used in that country. And it's a perfect example of like, wow, now this actually does really, really matter. And then it brings Mm. you to something like Urbit, which is like seriously a whole other rabbit hole, but the ability (laughs) The ability to now decentralize a front end and not just the back end and be able to use something like Skiff becomes so valuable. And in a lot of the cases where crypto doesn't make sense as a use case for right now, we should feel lucky that that it's not, you know, a pressing mm. need for us. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a really great point. And it's also I've seen a lot of sentiment on Twitter that it's like, all the U.S.-based companies that are trying to, like, reinvent financial systems should really look to, like, crypto companies that are based in areas that have banking systems that are a lot less reliable. Um, yeah. Because, like, ultimately, that's that's really where crypto is making such a big difference. And before we close out, I would love your thought on whether or not you think, we, well, I guess we've talked a lot about, you know, growing up in the Internet and I think there are some really amazing things about that. And I also think that there are some things that we both acknowledge like could be much better about the internet. Um, do you think, A, us being increasingly online as just like a population of people is a good thing? And B, do you think Web3 will make that any better? Small questions. Mm, yeah. Very small questions. Okay, the first thing about being online, I have a comment. I don't really have an answer um, because I think it's something that I struggle with. And we talked about it a little bit of like so much of our identity or at least my identity has actually been defined by code. Um, Mm. And I read an article recently. I was trying to dig into this, but 
it was describing how social media today is less of an interaction between a user and a given network of other people, but it's actually more of an interaction between a user and what you can call like an algorithmized version of self. And so you can think about it as you as a user are curating your feed and you have some semblance of control of what you want to see, but in a big way, your feed is curating you and your preferences and the things that you like. Um, And so it really bleeds into your physical life and the lines between the two are getting increasingly blurred. There's a trend going around on TikTok right now. I'm in the process of writing a piece about it, but it's so hefty that I'm trying (laughs) to do it justice. But it's called Core Core, and it's almost a play on all of these other sort of like different aesthetics that have been commercialized online, like Cottage Core, for example. Mm. Um, And Core Core is like the first time I've really seen this collective energy of people on the Internet basically breaking down the fourth wall, showing how lonely these digital experiences can feel and how almost dystopian they can feel. But the fact is, CoreCore gets proliferated through people like being able to edit these videos on TikTok and share them and get distribution. Um, It's like a super interesting concept that I feel like touches on, like a lot of people are thinking about their digital identity and what it means. So I I talk about this idea of digital health with my friends all the time because I don't think I have a good relationship with technology. But where I've sort of netted out is like, how do I limit my time online when so much of my identity and so much of my life is online, right? Like if Mm. I shut off, if I shut off the internet, does that make me disappear? And obviously that's such an extreme view of it, but it does feel true to an extent. And so again, I don't really have an answer, but I have a comment. (laughs) And then to your last question of do I think it'll Web3 will make the internet feel like a better place? I go back to the example I gave about the artist-fan relationship with music, just as an example. Um, I think that general line of thinking of using digital assets or using ownership as a way of strengthening relationships, it's a good example of how web three is less of an end goal but it's more of a means it's more of a tool to kind of course correct where we've gone wrong on the internet in the past and i guess i would say i don't think that decentralized networks are a silver bullet to fix all of the internet's problems but i do think they offer a much better approach to centralized systems we we finally have real incentive alignment and we finally have real upside for contributors and I definitely think that that will make the internet a better place. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I think, I guess just closing out, like one interesting aspect about this concept that, you know, if you stop tweeting or stop writing or stop posting on TikTok, like you just sort of cease to exist. I think in some ways, this idea and your thesis around bringing online communities to real life is actually like a very interesting way of getting around this problem where you actually, instead of only having these relationships online, you bring them into like real physical space so that, you know, if you do stop tweeting or if Elon shuts off Twitter or whatever, these relationships still exist. And I think that's really fascinating. And even like I would say, you know, to some degree, Web3 is kind of doing something similar where like, if a company doesn't pay their AWS bill or if 
Facebook shuts down for a day or whatever, like these things exist in perpetuity, immutably on chain. And so that kind of makes me hopeful about the future of the Internet, that like increasingly if our identities and relationships are going to be digital, creating systems for either manifesting those things in real life so that we're not relying on digital systems or creating more resilient systems, which is, I think, what Web3 does. Um, I don't know. That makes me very hopeful about the future of the Internet and like making it a little less lonely. Yeah, I could not agree more. Well, Gabby, this was so wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people learn more about you, read your writing, all of the things? Yeah. Well, again, thank you. This was a blast. Um, I'm on Twitter at Gabby underscore Goldberg. And then I actually just started a Substack in an effort to try and write more regularly um, and hopefully talk about more kind of like personal things and other things that are interesting to me, like this core core concept and other stuff. And so that's GabbyGoldberg.Substack.com. Amazing. Gabby, thank you again so much for coming on the show. Thank you. If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcasts I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.